don't know if you know, but uh, tonight is Oscar night. That night when all the luminaries of the silver screen all get together for three and a half hours of speeches and awards and moments when things go hilariously wrong and are remembered forever because it's, well, the Oscars. Now, now I don't know if you realize this, but there's a franchise, uh, there's a movie franchise that never wins an Oscar, even though I suspect it's the most success, successful movie franchise of all time, and that's Marvel. Now, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but Marvel movies never take home an Oscar. Now, I don't want you, you know, to Google Marvel movies and Oscars now. This is sermon time, but feel free to search later and let me know if I'm wrong. Now, even though Marvel movies never win Oscars, they've changed the way we watch movies. They've changed the way I watch movies. And one of the ways, and, and there are many, um, that Marvel movies have changed the way that we watch movies is that they've changed the end credit roll forever. You see, pre-MCU or Marvel Comics Universe, the end credits were something that you would switch off, you would, you would turn off, or if you did keep watching, it's because there was a song that you liked at the end or you wanted to find out the name of that hot actor in that specific scene. But then Marvel came along and started putting in these teaser trailer, Easter egg scenes at the end of the movie, either midway through the end credits or at the end of the credits or midway and at the end of the end credits. And these scenes would set up future developments in the MCU, and that made you want to keep on watching because you wanted to know what might happen next. And for many people, Revelation is, the, is kind of like the end credit roll of the Bible. It's there at the end. It's it's rather boring. It's quite hard to understand who is who and because there's these weird names like the grip and the gaffer and the beast and, you know, the prophet. And so for many people, Revelation is the bit at the end of the Bible that it's, it's, it's okay to skip over just like the credits in movies. But what I hope over the past few weeks that we've experienced is, is a new appreciation for this wonderful book in the Bible, its majesty and its mystery and its symbolism and how it applied to the early church and how it applies to us now and what kind of, what vision of the future it paints. And so my prayer is that instead of viewing Revelation like the credit roll at the end of the movie, that we start viewing Revelation like the sneak peek scene of a Marvel movie. As we read Revelation, we should be excited as we wonder what's going to come next. We should have questions about these new, new characters that have been introduced. We should feel at least a little um, mentally and emotionally primed for what is on the horizon. These little scenes give us insights into what is headed our way, new storylines, new character development, new villains, new heroes. And it's not the whole story, but it's a taster. So, so revelation should be whetting our appetite for eternity. Now, over the past few weeks, we've really covered a lot of ground. We've, and here's a few things that we've learned. We've learned that John uses symbolism and metaphor to show that God will win the victory over sin and evil and Satan. We've learned that almost all of the symbols used in Revelation find their origin where? 
in the Old Testament, we learn that John wrote Revelation to the seven churches listed in chapter 2 and 3. And these churches represent the church universal. We learn that Revelation was written to the suffering church in the Roman Empire who needed to be reassured that God was still on the throne in spite of what was happening around them. We learned about these three series of, of judgments, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls that remind us of the plagues in the book of Exodus and show us that God takes the eradication of evil seriously even if we don't take the plagues in Revelation literally. We learned that Revelation switches between the throne room of God where he's ruling absolutely and earth where life is getting more and more chaotic. We learned that even though God keeps the door open for people to turn to him in repentance, he holds it open as long as he can. Too often their hearts just get harder and harder against him. Last week we learned about the overthrow of the great prostitute or Rome, which is symbolic of any system that sets itself up against God. And that brings us through to chapter 20. Okay. Here's a quick summary. Please feel free to read along so that you can track where I'm going. So, the dragon, Satan, gets bound in verse 2 for 1,000 years. He's thrown into the abyss. And during this time, the martyrs reign for 1,000 years. They are thought of as the first resurrection. Now, after this 1,000 years, Satan is released for a short time and he brings the nations of the world all together for a battle against God's people. But, spoiler alert, God wins in verse 9. Okay, now when I was preparing this message, I wrestled with whether to preach on the various ways to understand the millennium, verses 5 through 9. So we have premillennialism, we have post-millennialism, and we have a-millennialism. Now, I chose not to uh, because there are other, other things that I want us to focus on. And rather than getting hung up on four verses in the Bible, um, yeah, there are, there are other things that I think should be capturing our minds and our imagination. There are... There are more important things, in a sense, that we need to be spending our energy on understanding and living out. But there are people who have researched these three ways of, um, of understanding these 1,000 years. So feel free to, you know, to search on Google, to read some commentaries, and to draw your own conclusions as to how we understand the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. Now, the end of Chapter 20 brings us to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And all I want to say here is this. That according to these verses, if you are not placing your trust and your hope in Jesus' imputed or transferred righteousness, then your only other option is to trust in your own righteousness. And your own righteousness will fail you. Verse 12 shows us that Jesus will bring to light everything that you have done in your life. And that scares the life out of me. And as one author says, if you're not, if you're not wrapped around, if you're not 
not covered in the righteousness of Jesus, then you will be spiritually naked, fully exposed before the all-seeing judge of the universe. And so we see these folks who are hoping that their own good works will be enough and they will be thrown into the lake of fire along with death and Hades. Randy Alcorn says, the unbeliever's wish to be away from God turns out to be his worst nightmare. The, the unbeliever's wish to be away from God turns out to be his worst nightmare. This is the second death, as verse 14 says. This is the death from which there is no return. And so here this morning, if you've never experienced you know, the covering of Jesus' righteousness, if you've never known the relief and the wonder of having Jesus' absolute holiness credited to your account, then, as the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. Choose Jesus. Trust him. Let him wrap around and absolutely cover your shame and your sin so that you can stand before him on that day holy and righteous. I've never bought a house. I've never chosen my own home. Wendy and I have, have either lived in a church manse in a rental arrangement or we've lived in the cabin on, on a ship. That's what our married life has been like for 16 years. Now I hear that there are people who don't rent. That there are people who look at the options available, look at the money they have access to, and then they actually purchase a house. I've heard that there are people like that who exist. We're not one of them but I hear they exist. And what I understand is that when you're purchasing a house, then there, are, then there are a few things that you might want to consider, like the location of the house or the neighborhood it's in or, or the, you know, the square footage of the house. Now, for me, when someone talks to me about the square footage of their house, I have no idea what that means. I have no reference point. Literally no idea. Like 60,000 feet, 5,000 feet, you know, 2,000 feet, what's a good square footage? And so I actually had to look up um, that 3,000 square foot is considered a, a large house. I know nothing. But God, when it comes to heaven, our future home, God is a detailer. He doesn't tell us everything, but he gives us some sweet factoids. And so in chapter 21, we find out what our new home will be like. We learn about its location in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In other words, God is going to bring heaven down to earth. This earth on which we stand and which we live will be renewed. We also learn about the neighborhood of our new home in verse 6 through 9. Verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 8. But the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, end quote. So what's our neighborhood like? 
In short, friends, those who've quenched the eternal thirst of their souls at the spring of the water of life, those who've trusted in Jesus and are walking with him will live on this new earth. They will be our neighbors. But those who've chosen to trust in their own self-righteousness and are still um, known by their sins will spend the whole of eternity being known by their sins. Now, you may think that, you know, when we start to talk about those in and those out, that we have an idea of a gated community where only the privileged live. But not at all. That's not what we read in the Bible. Um, first of all, it will be open, as verse 25 tells us, it, that the gates will never be shut. And it won't be the proud and the entitled who live here. It will be those who place their trust in Jesus. It will be the martyrs and the saints and the poor in spirit and the weak and the humble, those who are nothing in this world, those who we walk by and we don't even see. They are the ones, if they place their trust in Jesus, who will have a title deed to this new home. Next, we learn about the square footage of this new home. Read it in Verse 10, and there's a lot of 12s, right? 12,000 stadia long and 12,000 stadia wide and 12,000 stadia high. And the walls are 144 cubits thick and there are, there are 12 gates and there are 12 foundations. And I hope we know by now that this is a symbolic number. Like we should not be thinking that this new city will be 12,000 stadia long and wide and high because if so, that means it's, you know, it's a cube like, um, you know, the people in Star Trek. What are the ones that fly around, in, you know, in the cube? Yeah, the Borg, that's it. And it, it won't look like that. It's a symbol. But the symbolic number means that God will bring in everyone who chooses him, that no one who wants him will be left out. Anyone who wants to be there will be there. Now, another thing that we might wonder is, where's the local church on this new earth? What are the options for Sundays? Will we sing hymns or modern worship songs? Will we have to maybe shop around, you know? Will we choose this church or that church? Well, um, we actually find out the answer in verse 22, which says this, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, which means that that thing that we look for on a Sunday morning, that experience of intimacy and worship and unity and encouragement, we won't have to go to a place to find that because this will be our life. There will be no Monday morning blues. There will be no Wednesday hump day. There will be no larger church down the street who we are jealous of. We won't need a location to feel closer to God. This will be our life. Next, what are the utilities like in our new home, right? You know, that's the thing that we look for. What are the utilities like? How is it powered? Is it, you know, eco-friendly? How is the lighting? Well, verse 23 tells us, 
It says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Wow. Awesome. Now, what about the septic system? What about the water? Is it city water? Is it well water? Verse 1 of chapter 22 tells us, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. Incredible. That's our water, fresh and clean and pure from God's throne itself. Okay, what about health care? Is there a pharmacy in the community? Where's the nearest shopper's drug mart in the new heaven and the new earth? Verse 2 of chapter 22. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree, here we go, are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen? Or when heaven comes down to earth, when heaven comes to us, what a day of rejoicing that w- will be. Now, I've missed out so much in these, in, these, in these chapters, and I'm aware of that. It's so rich and so exciting. It's way more um, lifeful than any Marvel teaser trailer scene. But now I want to draw our attention to our focus passage, to the soap passage where we will have the scripture S, and then we will observe O, and then we will apply A, and then we will pray P. And so the passage that I want to focus on is Revelation 21, verse 3. Now, for us to understand Revelation 21, verse 3, we actually have to back up a little to verse 1 of chapter 21, you know, for us to know the context. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, which means that there was no longer any chaos, no longer any disorder Right, that's what the sea represents. Reading on. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and here's our soap verse, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will will be with them, and be their God. And then the verses go on to say, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. It's a beautiful, stunning, amazing, warm, and a tender image. All right? Amen? Okay, now let's look at our verse, verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their their God. So what do we observe here? 
first of all this, that this is Emmanuel on steroids. That God is moving in with us and will never leave us. God is here to stay. Okay, think about it. Now each member of the Trinity has come and has moved in. First Jesus came in the, in the incarnation to live with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. Then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and in Cornelius' house to live with us. Acts chapter 2 verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, so that's Jesus has come and the Holy Spirit has come. And now we have this ultimate expression of Emmanuel, God with us, God moves in. God's dwelling place is among the people. Now when Jesus came, he 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 was really slumming it with us. He humbled himself, he bent down low and he lowered himself. So that he could be with us. It says that he made himself nothing in Philippians 4 verse 7. His glory was veiled. But now in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, we see God in all his glory. This is the first time, people, in human history that God is able to appear to, to humanity in all his glory. This is the first time. Moses had a glimpse. Isaiah had a glimpse. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse on the mountain at the transfiguration. But now everyone will see him and he will be mingling with us. And we won't need sunglasses because we won't be blinded because we will be glorified. We will be made perfect. His image in us as we look on him will be glorious and full. And this verse is special. I love this verse um, because even though um, God will come in his glory, the the language that's used in verse 3 and on is one of intimacy and warmth and homecoming. It's the language of, of family, that they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God Friends, we have no idea what this even looks like. We cannot imagine or somehow wrap words around these incredible truths. But what it does is it gives us just a glimpse, an insight, like something flashing past the window that we see for a second and then it's gone. But in that glimpse is hope. God will bring heaven down to earth. We imagine that heaven will be up there or out there. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Well, how about when I die, hallelujah, by and by, God will come down. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, God will come down. And as he comes down and makes his dwelling with us, God will restore and renew all creation. It will be something that at the same time is truly familiar and yet it will be new. It will take our breath away, and yet it will feel safe and home-like. One writer says this, that there will be a whole new reality, a new kind of existence in which all of the negatives of the first will be removed. All of the discoloration by sin will be gone. What would your life look like? What would your history look like? without the discoloration 
of sin. Well, that's what heaven will be like. Are you able to imagine that? Are you able to wrap your head around that? Can you think of that? Can you picture that in your mind? I can't. But I can't wait. This is the moment that all human history has been waiting for. So friends, what does this mean for us? How can we apply this truth to our lives? Lives Simply this. By knowing that one day, or knowing that one day God will come and be with us on earth should have a direct impact on how we live our lives now here on earth. Let me say that again. Knowing that one day God will come and be with us on earth should have a direct impact on how we live our lives now here on earth. Not because we must or because we should, but because we're excited and we cannot wait. A wife waiting for a husband to come home after a tour of duty She doesn't clean the house because she must or she feels she should, right? God is moving in with us. Let's get ready. All of the brokenness and hurt and residual harm left over from sin and the fall will be gone. We will be able to reflect back on our lives here on earth, all the suffering and the the regret and the sin and the pain, and yet we will feel no sadness because God will wipe every tear from our, our eyes. Has your imagination got the capacity to imagine Almighty God with a box of Kleenexes gently wiping the tears from your eyes? That's what chapter 21 verse 4 says. The old order of things will have passed away. It will be new. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17 in its fullness. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Amen. Now as the worship team comes up, let me say this. That any Marvel fan worth their salt when they watch that scene in the credits walk away from the movie thinking I cannot wait for the next movie and not only that but they talk to their other superhero fan friends and they discuss what that scene might mean what are the easter eggs what are the hidden clues the, you know the symbolism the secret meanings why was that thing there in that scene what does it mean you know for the future and As they're talking, theories abound, but they all hold loosely to these theories because they know that whatever's coming is going to be way cooler and way more real than any theory that they might be able to come up up with. And Revelation does the same for us if we love and follow Jesus. In in, in In this one moment, we are grateful for what we have and we cannot wait for what's to come next. And just like any Marvel fan excited about the next movie, so the Christian lives in a state of anticipation for what Revelation has hinted at. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon in verse 7 and verse 12 and again in verse 20. Look, look, he says, look, I am coming soon. And so we say along with John, come Lord Jesus. In verse 17, the Spirit says, come. And the one who hears, that's us, says, come. Jesus, we're waiting for you. 
Verse 17, let the one who is thirsty say, come. Are you thirsty? Are you longing for a drink of the river, of the water, of life that flows from the throne of God? Have you ever experienced Jesus? Have you ever confessed your sins to him and experienced the glory and the beauty of having your heart cleansed and the infilling of the Holy Spirit? If you've never experienced that, then you're still included in this. Verse 17 is for you. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let me say that again. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. In other words, you too can say, come, Lord Jesus. What situation in your life do you need to be praying, come, Lord Jesus, into? What circumstances stealing your joy? What circumstances leading you into hopelessness? Where are you tempted to believe that Jesus is not there? Well, Revelation 22 tells you to invite him in. Invite him into that circumstance. Invite him into that situation. Say, come, Lord Jesus. You know, what would your life look like if every day you woke up saying, come, Lord Jesus? If every time you walked into work, you said, come, Lord Jesus? What if um, come, Lord Jesus was your anthem, your mantra, your breath prayer? This prayer that you prayed over every situation you're in, come, Lord Jesus. Because what I can tell you is that if you pray this prayer, this is the prayer that you can guarantee that you can guarantee will be answered. This is the prayer that will be answered 100%. How do I know this? How do I know that saying, come, Lord Jesus, will be answered? Because Jesus himself says in chapter 22 of Revelation, yes. I am coming soon. And so Jesus, create in us, would you create in us a longing for what is real and true, for what revelation points us towards. Show us how to long for your future coming by holding onto your present grace, as verse 21 tells us. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Let me say that again. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Friends, these are the last words in the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. In his present grace, we have everything we need to live by faith and to long with perseverance for that moment when he comes. So Lord, hone our longing, sharpen our longing, make us into a people who say, come Lord Jesus. May our lives be fleshed out versions of come, Lord Jesus. And as we wait, we do not wait in in vain because we have a hope, we have a confidence that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with God's people. His grace now, His presence later. His grace now, His presence later. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.